Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Bruce Schneier. For those in the security field, he truly needs no introduction. He's a longtime juggernaut in the space through his blog, Schneier on Security. He has testified before Congress on internet security topics, and he is a Harvard lecturer. In the episode, we will discuss his background and then dive into one of his latest interests, the relationship between AI and hacking. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Ah, thanks for having me. Now, you're the first guest I've had on the podcast that has a Wikipedia page. Uh, so before we dive too much into your background, how did that Wikipedia page actually come about? Are you interviewed by someone at Wikipedia? Uh, what's the backstory there? So I don't know if you know Wikipedia, but you can't do that. There's no, there's no backstory. The page appears, okay. somebody creates it. Uh, you know, I don't edit it. I don't really even look at it. But no, Wikipedia frowns on people editing their own pages. So it's kind of like okay. magic. It just appears and it's there. And it's last time I looked, it was accurate. I mean, they had my cat's names for a while and now they're gone. <laughs> I think there was like this, this editing war about whether it was appropriate for an encyclopedia to list names of my cats. But they weren't the cat's <laughs> actual names. They were their code names. Anyway, uh, okay. no. So I have no idea how that page came about or uh, who maintains it, how it's maintained or anything. Interesting. Well, I guess if uh, if any of my assumptions over the next few minutes here are just completely off base, I can just blame the Wikipedia editors then. <laughs> and, and you can edit the page, although you there might you probably go. have to footnote. You have to reference things. So they don't like people making changes that aren't referenced. So if we want to change a fact, we have to say it here in this podcast. Then you can edit it citing the podcast. All right. Just speak oh, with all conviction. Right. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, perfect. So we have a we have a lot to talk about today. We'll get to kind of the the integration or intertwining rather of AI and hacking. You published a paper on that recently, but before we get there, I do want to just talk about your background briefly uh, because you have quite the the storied background in security. Uh, when wow. I was <laughs> well, when I was first getting interested in the security space several years ago. You were one of the first names that was recommended to me. I think one of the, the key questions everyone getting started in security asks is, what can I do to, to follow along just since the field is so rapidly changing? Um, and your name was was in that kind of top three list. So um, really excited to, to learn a little bit more about, about your story. And uh, we won't spend too much time on it, but just to go back to the, the kind of beginning, we'll say, uh, you graduated from the University of Rochester uh, in physics back in 1984. So not, not computer security related, but there probably weren't a lot of computer security degrees available. There weren't back even the computer science degrees back then, okay. let alone computer yeah. security degrees. No, that's well, that's sort of the way it was. And physics is basically math with boundary conditions. Now I know you're reading my Wikipedia page, so I'm sure that's there. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, and that ties into the next piece. I guess those computer science degrees came around four or so years later. You got your master's at American. Uh, but the part that that I'm kind of curious and to dive into in a bit more detail is you didn't start writing until 1991. And uh, again, pulling straight from your Wikipedia page, I saw that that was because you got laid off from another job. So what was that, that three-year kind of gap in the timeline? What were you doing between graduation and before you started writing? It's more than a three-year gap. Uh, I worked okay. for the government for a while. 
Okay. And then I moved to Chicago, worked for AT&T. And I, it's not, I was been writing all my life. I was getting published before. Uh, <laughs> one. But I had, okay. it, wasn't, it wasn't when I started writing. And that's important because writers, you know, writing takes practice. Certainly. And uh, I got laid off from AT&T in 1990. And when you get laid off from a big company, they give you, uh, they give you a severance check. And, and important to know, this is actually a, a good security uh, point. The severance check is not for you. The company couldn't care less about you. The severance check is a piece of theater that all remaining employees need to watch because they, because the company wants them to believe that they'll be treated well. Because when there are layoffs, everyone else starts writing their resumes. But a good severance package is a way to signal to the remaining employees, it's okay, stay around, you'll be taken care of if we have to let you go. So you get a good severance package, as you did in the early 90s. And you could do two things, I thought, at the time. I could either like, get another job or I can try uh, writing for a living, which is what I did. I started writing freelance for the computer magazines. And they paid real money back then. They paid a dollar <laughs> a word, which is kind of wow. crazy when you think about it. So I would write for like Mac Week and InfoWorld, you know, these these. Uh, paper magazines about the, the computer field. And that's when hmm. I started writing about cryptography, which I've always been interested in, and got my first book contract and wrote my first book. Right. So putting that in context, just briefly before we talk about the book a little bit more, you said a dollar per word back then. Do you have any sort of uh, comparison for what that's like today? I mean, I other than but... all the free bloggers that exist. And so that's really a good point. Like Most people get zero per word. Right. right. Content is free now. Content is cheap. No one pays for content. Right. I do not know what freelance writers get, but I bet they get lousy money. <laughs> I know what like the Atlantic pays for a, for an essay and it's a couple hundred dollars. It's not a lot. Right. And people are doing it full time are going to get more, but it's it's not a great business right now. But back then it was. You could support yourself on it. Okay. Yeah. And so you really, like you mentioned, you kind of kicked off the actual publications of your writing come 1991 or so and, and the book in 1994. But when did you really start writing? What inspired that love for writing in the first place? Oh, I have no idea. I probably could have used a good <laughs> origin story, but I, I don't have one and I'm too lazy to make one up. That's okay. Uh, at least you're you're honest about it. Okay. Well, thinking about your first book, then applied cryptography. Uh, again, that was in 1994. That kind of catapulted your career. So really, in... the book was published in 1993. I mean, this was odd back then. Okay. Right? So computer books decay in value. Like you don't want to buy an older book, right? Because it's old. It's obsolete. So Wiley actually lied in the copyright date in the book. The book oh. was published in fall of 93, but they stuck a 94 copyright date on it, <laughs> you know, wanting to get like another year of freshness. I, I, I don't know if this is even allowed, but they did it. So no, that book came out in fall of 93, even though the copyright date says 94. Interesting. No, it's an awesome fun fact. Got to add that one to the Wikipedia page as well. So I, I, yeah, hope, uh, hope you're taking notes because I can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so once that book was published, how did that actually change the your career and, and your your writing trajectory? Now, the way to think of that book is very much a 600-page business card. 
Okay. So that that book launched my consulting career. You know, on on the strength of that book, I started doing cryptography consulting. And if you think about the mid '90s, right, the commercial internet is just starting. Right? SSL 1.0, I mean, very basic stuff, and people are starting to realize they need a security, not just for the computers they're holding but for data moving around this newfangled thing called the internet, which wasn't that newfangled, but for a lot of people it was. So there's this rise of this need just for cryptography and a lot of things. And people looked around, saw my book, bought the book. The book became a a bestseller, which is like crazy when you think about it today, (laughs) but there's nothing else out there. And then when people read the book and said, well, this still doesn't make sense, (laughs) right? They would pick up the phone and call me. And I would, I was, I spent a bunch of years doing uh, consulting work for lots of companies, either designing systems or breaking systems they designed, which was actually more fun and easy. I'm sure. So you, after that, that 1990 event, you kind of went into full writing, but then it sounds like after the book came out, you kind of changed the trajectory back a little bit. And all of a sudden consulting really took over. Um, the the majority of your time is that right? You know, so you kind of I mean, transitioned I, into. Yeah, I don't know if I could apportion time back then. I still, still <laughs> okay, wrote. Sure. I mean, if you look at my publications. I was still writing because yeah. writing is fun, and I still I wrote books. I mean, there are a couple of books that died a quiet and lonely death. I wrote a book on Macintosh security. I wrote a book on email security. The next book I wrote that actually was sort of popular again was Secrets and Lies: Computer Security in the Year Two Thousand. So I was doing both writing and consulting during those years. And I, I hesitate to, to give you a percentage division among the two. Sure. Well, I mean, maybe then when you got to the, the early 2000s and you reflected on what the last decade or so had been like, what did you decide that you wanted to, to focus on moving forward? Wow. Who remembers? I was still doing uh, some. Okay. So 1997, right? I turned my consulting company Sorry, 1999, I turned my consulting company into a venture capital-backed actual company. So from counterpain systems to counterpain internet security. Mm-hmm. And we started doing uh, what was then brand new managed security monitoring, right? By monitoring other people's uh, networks. So I did that in 99. I'm still writing books. I'm still doing consulting. I'm kind of doing everything. And that's pretty normal for me. I have very much a portfolio life. I do a lot of this right. and a lot of that. And it all sort of comes together into a career. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, one of the other things that I wanted to just quickly touch on, and then we'll get into the, the AI piece. Uh, obviously, when you first started writing, social media didn't exist at all. Now you're very widely followed in the cybersecurity space as a, a trusted source uh, through a variety of different media types, whether it's the, the newsletter, the blog site, or just social media like Twitter. How did you transform your approach to account for that social media uh, just kind of take over in terms of news. Uh, I think so some I'm, people do that better than others, but you've So clearly... I basically ignored it. I'm doing it terribly and I don't care. <laughs> okay. right? So right, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I've never had accounts on either of those systems. I'm not on LinkedIn. I'm not on anything, right? I send a monthly email, which <laughs> was cool in like the late nineties became totally uncool. And now with Substack is cool again, but I'm not on right. Substack. Uh, I started my blog in 2004, I think. And really, I just took the newsletter and made it into blog entries. 
And the blog, if you go to it, there's no graphics. There's no images. It's text. <laughs> so I'm terrible at the transition. I do not tweet. Now, there are accounts that mirror my blog. So there is a Twitter feed mm. called Schleier Blog, which just tweets out my blog entries. I mean, I, I, I've never been on it. I have a system who manages it, and it just is an automatic system that does that. There's a right. Facebook page that basically also mirrors my blog entries. I never go to it. I never see it. I mean, people comment on it, and I have no idea because I, I don't even know the password. I'm, I'm not on it. So I've done really badly. I kind of dislike social media. Right. It, it doesn't actually do anything for me. And I made the transition from once a month to a daily blog. That is the only transition I've made. And that I did pretty well. I mean, I thought I was late coming in blogging. Turns out I was early because there's a lot of blogging to go. Uh, for a while, someone was taking my uh, newsletters and reading them, making it a podcast. I don't even know who they were. <laughs> uh, there are people who translate some of my stuff to other uh, languages. Often they just email me and I say, sure, do it. So I don't think I've made the transition well. I think I made it really poorly. But you know, by the strength of what I do, I can get away with doing it poorly. But I'd probably right. have a lot more followers if I tweeted. But I'd also <laughs> yeah, be probably I, a lot more angry at the world. That's, yeah, probably a, a fair interpretation of the, the scenario. I mean, uh, I think you're, you're probably being a little humble because even those automated sites that are just kind of scraping from your blog and, and posting back out on social media is still a, a form of engagement that's obviously doing very well. I think that Schneier blog Twitter that you mentioned has over 100,000 followers. So it's not like you've uh, kind of completely shunned it. But I think it's interesting to hear that you've kind of stuck to your guns in terms of the approach and, and it's worked out for you. And, and like you said, it's kind of come full circle now that these email newsletters are becoming popular once more and the kind of quick digest on news. Yeah. And I guess they'll become unpopular again in a few years and I'll just keep <laughs> doing what I'm doing. We'll just, you know, yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Okay. So let's pivot into the kind of exciting topic of the day, which is AI and security, the ramifications of hacking as you think about both offense and defense with AI. Again, you published the paper on this, so you'll probably do a better introduction than I can. Uh, so can you please just kind of describe the uh, high-level challenge that you're thinking about here, uh, how AI is going to continue to play a role in the future of, of hacking? So I want to talk about AI and security first. I actually think that's more basic and also pretty interesting. Sure. That, you know, I'll get asked pretty regularly, is AI going to benefit the attacker or defender more? And it's a really interesting question. Yeah. And the answer is not at all obvious. I mean, so AI techniques can be used by both sides, both to uh, to attack networks and to defend networks. And, you know, advances are disjoint, and I, I don't know who's going to win that particular arms race. I think initially AI benefits the defense because already attacks are happening at computer speeds, and defense is largely happening at human decision-making speeds. And if that could be sped up, I think there's an enormous advantage to be had for the defender, kind of evening the odds. So I think in the near term, AI benefits the defense. The other place that AI is sort of interesting to look at is in vulnerability finding, right? Finding vulnerabilities in code, very human activity, but something that AIs are being set to. Mm -hmm. 
Right? And it's the kind of thing you'd expect an AI to be good at. Right? Hundreds of millions of lines of code, dependencies and interactions, pattern matching. It's like just the sort of thing you'd build a machine learning system for. And people are, and they're pretty mediocre right now. <laughs> they're not that great, but you know how the story goes, right? Every year they'll get better. And then one year they'll surpass humans and they'll never look back. <laughs> like chess, like, like everything right. else. And that's a really interesting world, a world where you can give an AI a piece of code and it'll find hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, all the vulnerabilities. Now, that will be an enormous boon to the attacker, right? Vulnerabilities in code, attackers are going to go to town. But defenders can use it too. They could run this program, this AI, on code before it's released. Right? So you can imagine that this is now standards built into the compilers. And we could, so you're Microsoft, you run this against Windows and it fixes all the vulnerabilities. And we can imagine a world where software vulnerabilities are a thing of the past. Right. Because now all the AI is fine. Now, that benefits the defender enormously. But the transition period is very dangerous. There's a lot of legacy code. There's a lot of code that's already out there. There's a lot of code that can't be patched. All that code, vulnerabilities are found, they'll never be fixed. And there it benefits the attacker. So long term here, AI vulnerability finding is extremely valuable for the defender. Short term, it benefits the attacker. Interesting. So it sounds like you could almost break it into three pieces from the way you just described it. Immediately, so hyper short term, it benefits the defender because uh, it's going to allow just a, a vast level of improvement over what exists today. Then there's going to be that awkward transition period where you touched on just kind of the, the legacy code bases, some of these companies not changing their code bases. But even beyond that, obviously, this sort of capability has a price tag that comes along with it. We already see in the security space the, the skyrocketing costs of some of these different vendor tools, and that's going to make the capability potentially cost prohibitive. So if an attacker goes ahead and, and purchases some of these capabilities for an offensive scenario and can apply that across several different companies, but not each individual defender, especially these smaller companies, can actually afford that sort of capability, then there's a clear advantage towards the attackers. And then the final phase would be, like you said, just potentially the, the resolution of, of software vulnerability. But let's touch back on that, that second piece for a second. Wait, 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 slow down for a second. So that's, that's a nice, neat scenario. Right? Okay, yeah. Crazy. But the thing about AI is that it's really unpredictable. Right, stuff that we think is easy turns out to be hard. Something is hard turns out to be easy. Right. When I was a student, we learned that the game of Go would never be solved by an AI because it's intractable. Like it blows up too fast. Hmm. Until like you know, one day when DeepMind just did it because they were bored. So, I bet there's a lot of things I'm not even thinking about that could easily throw monkey wrenches into those three neat categories. But we'll go with them for now. But I wouldn't like <laughs> bet on them. There's too yeah. many variables in play. Yeah, certainly a, a grain of salt to be taken with any of that. Um, so thinking about that that second scenario, what do you see as sort of the the potential remedies of that that cost issue? I mean, we've seen the ransomware attacks just skyrocket over the last year and a half, and I'm sure you've spent plenty of time talking about that. So we don't need to 
to get too off track here, but the point is the, the monetization aspects for these attackers are continuing to increase. And something like an AI tool, even if it costs them several million dollars, would be worth it from an attacker's perspective, uh, even if not every enterprise can maybe fork up the similar price tag from a, a defense standpoint, I think, especially as you think about uh, kind of smaller to mid-sized companies, what do you see as the potential workaround for that, if any? So we need to solve this even without AIs. I mean, just the Internet of Things and legacy systems and companies going out of business and software existing on the Internet for years and decades that's never being patched. And there are people working on this. The, the set of solutions I tend to like are things monitoring other things. And if you imagine your home of the future, will have hundreds of IoT-enabled devices and they're going to be insecure, they're going to be on your network. And you know, wouldn't it be great if there was something on your network, let's just say it's your home router, you know, a, a better version of it, that's smart enough to monitor everything else in your home. Uh, one example, uh, Cisco has a uh, proposal called Manufacturer's Usage Description, MUDs. Hmm. The basic idea is, that every device has on the internet like a signed document from the manufacturer of what it should do. So you get a refrigerator, you plug it in, it's on the internet because now refrigerator on the internet for some crazy reason, but they are. <laughs> and then your home router says, hey, look, there's a new thing on, the, on, the, on my internet. It's a refrigerator. It's this model. So the uh, router goes out, gets the signed document that says, this refrigerator will, you know, check for updates once a week, and it's going to go on the web and pull down recipes, and it might interface with uh, some automatic food delivery. I'm just making this stuff up, right? Sure. Because there's a bunch of things that it, it does. So now the router says, okay, I know what this device is. I know what it's supposed to do. If it starts, you know, sending thousands of emails or SIN pings, right, or, or, or anything else, the router says, this refrigerator has been hacked. I'm going to stop this behavior. So you have some smart device on your network that monitors everything else. I think a solution like that, I mean, maybe not the one I described, maybe something similar, is going to be how we're going to deal with a world of all of these orphan devices, all these insecure things, all these unpatchable things. And we have to solve that, even without AIs. So hmm. I, I tend to like solutions that are looking in that area. Interesting. So the first thing that, that comes to mind for me, and, and feel free to, to push back on this, uh, but is kind of the, the concept of single point of failure, right? Where if you have an object or um, any sort of computer system that's monitoring these other systems, well, then that becomes a point of failure in itself. For example, uh, being able to exploit that smart router in that scenario and change some of the conditions and maybe laterally move over to the refrigerator or even just uh, directly from the router once you have kind of that maybe administrative control over the rest of the network that poses some security risk in itself, right? And so sure. this kind and, of... And, I mean, and, and that's no different, right? It's true about your router right. today. It's yeah, true about to your sure. firewall, right? It's true about your IDS. I mean, we are stuck with a bunch of single points of failure. We try to build things so they're more resilient. Right. And, and you can design my system to be more resilient. But you know, in <laughs> sure. reality, it's likely going to be relatively cheap and we'll have single points of failure. You know, we're, 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 we're sort of stuck with that in the way we've designed networks and systems, even though you're right, a more robust solution would be better. Interesting. 
So again, not to get too far off, off topic here, I do want to tie this back to the, the AI piece in a minute, but uh, obviously a lot of just conversation around blockchain and, and decentralized technology. I'm sure everyone in the security industry is a, a bit sick of hearing about it at this point, but just to get your thoughts from that that statement that you just made, right? As far as single point of failure being uh, the direction we're headed in terms of cost-effective and just something practical. Do you think that there's any opportunity for some sort of decentralized technology or is it really towards that kind of hub and spoke model? So I'm a big fan of decentralized technologies. Blockchain is not one of them, by the way, and blockchain is useless for a whole bunch of reasons. That's a separate conversation. So pull sure. blockchain out of this. But sure. yes, I mean, decentralization is is an important security measure that we used to have and have lost in the centralization and monopolization of, of our industry. Now, I'm a part of Tim Berners-Lee's Solid Initiative, who's trying to decentralize data stores. Hmm. I think it's really powerful. And it's it, it'll... It'll do a lot of good for security reliability if we can get it implemented. Now we were a lot more secure, and we had, you know, several thousand ISPs instead of you know six. And getting back to that world would be good for us. It's hard. The monopolies are powerful. They like being monopolies, but they're <laughs> not good for society. So decentralized technologies, I think, are a big part of of any good, reliable, resilient future of the internet. But blockchain is not, and that's, that's just separate. Okay, sure. We'll leave that one for another time then. Uh, well, I do want to tie this back to the, the AI piece as well, because at the end of your, your paper, the, the takeaway, or at least the, the takeaway that I kind of had from it was we need to make a decision as a society in terms of how we want to approach AI moving forward uh, in order to just make sure that, that we're baselining expectations and, and the capabilities that we plan on uh, putting in place and, and think through the ramifications from a, a security and hacking standpoint. Uh, so is there any more kind of fine comb takeaway that that maybe I'm missing there? What do you see as uh, the, the action that we need to take as an industry or as a society as we think about the, the security ramifications of these technology improvements? So something we're really bad at. You know, we're really good at letting markets solve problems. And, and you know, we see the result of that. You know, we've built the internet basically for the short-term profit of a bunch of tech billionaires. It seems like a really <laughs> dumb way to organize society, but it's what we have. You know, I would like us to be more proactive. I'd like us to act more collectively as citizens instead of individually as consumers. Hmm. I would like these systems to reflect the whole of human uh, interaction and desires and hopes and not just uh, telescope down to uh, finance. But we are bad at that. <laughs> we are really bad at that. Europe's better than the US is, but all of us are really bad at that. And it's coming to the point where that's going to hurt us. That designing the world for the benefit of a bunch of tech billionaires, you know, it was just stupid and expensive. I think it's going to actually become harmful. So doing otherwise would be great. And, but again, this is hard. I mean, that small L libertarian philosophy permeates tech, right? The belief that, you know, somehow magically governments are bad at something, corporations are good at it, is, is just canon. But yep. unfettered power is bad. 
And right now we have unfettered corporate power. So I need another power center to balance that power. And the one I got is government. So I just want a little more evenness here. Yeah, and there's more a... thinking about long term than and less thinking about short term. There's a lot to unpack there. Obviously, you a mentioned lot to unpack, and it's really hard. <laughs> we're not going to do it. Yeah, you, now, I just I, wanna... I, I like seeing a lot of the uh, antitrust movement. Okay, but I don't know if it's going to turn into anything ever. Hmm. So yeah, you mentioned first of all the you think we're going to continue trending in this direction and there's going to be an actual kind of harmful event besides just kind of the the market forces that are in play. We've talked about AI and hacking, but is there anything in particular that you kind of are, are speaking to? Any specific examples that um, you're you're referring to or, or forecasting? Now, I think of the big issues. I think of climate change. I think okay. of future of work. I think of uh, income inequality. You know, I mean, all the big problems of... of planet today. They're all very deeply technical. Interesting. Okay. And so the other piece that I wanted to, to tie back to, right, is you mentioned as this potential solution for the, the AI and hacking problems, having government's involvement as uh, kind of the setting the guardrails as far as what this technology is really going to be capable of and, and what these companies are able to, to really run away with within the space. What do you see as the kind of appropriate implementation of government? Is it a limit on technology? Is it a limit on the the size of these companies? I mean, obviously this is a, again, a very detailed subject, but just based on, on your perspective, uh, what do you see as the appropriate measures that government should be taking specific to the space? So I don't know. I mean, I, I could talk about a lot of them in general, but this is not my area. I'm not sure. a policy person. I can recognize right. the power vacuum but exactly what to do, I kind of expect policy people to take care of that. I mean, certainly what antitrust does is it, it breaks up some of the power centers. And that, I mean, again, that gets back to distributed security. Are we gonna, you know, more actors of less power is safer than fewer actors of greater power, especially when the power can, can have global effects. Right. So that, that's sort of obvious. But exactly what the levers of government intervention, what sorts of regulation, I don't know what's going to work. We have to you know, figure it out. But I think we do need to figure it out. And the notion of, you know, we're just going to step back and let, you know, the, 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 the tech bros build society as they see fit. It really feels like a mistake. So let's take that maybe one level further then, right? If it's up to the, the policy people to go ahead and ultimately decide the appropriate levers to pull uh, what do you see as the next steps to just engage this as more of a, a community discussion and make this a higher priority for constituents in general? Because ultimately, uh, those, at least in theory, should determine uh, the different policy priorities for our government. And that's exactly our problem. Right? This has never been a uh, a campaign issue. This is not something that is uh, comes up in presidential debates. This is not a thing that, that candidates are worried about. And that's how the companies win, right? Because when, when no one else cares, the lobbyists do what they want. So you're right. This has to become somehow an issue that average people care about. And I don't know how to do that. I'd I, I like it to happen. You know, I think many have tried and, and failed. I worry that it's going to take some kind of mass casualty event. For it to happen, I'd rather that not be true. 
that might be. So the short answer is I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, it's certainly a difficult topic. And obviously, there's a lot of momentum in the, the antitrust space right now. Lena Khan's appointment as the FTC chair um, and some of the the discussions that have been taking place around Facebook and Amazon and, and these other big tech companies. Uh, but you're certainly right, especially as it comes to security and, and the ramifications of- And I worry about discussions because discussions have a way of petering out. <laughs> that we discuss things and, and people think they're doing good and eventually they ignore it and do something else. So that's always particularly scary. Interesting. So what do you think a listener of this podcast could do to just maybe better educate themselves or, or make a difference? Is it, uh, I mean, I'll go ahead and, and link that paper in the show description that kind of talks through your whole philosophy in, in a lot more detail than we could possibly go into on this podcast. Um, but how do you think someone could, could stay informed on this topic and just aware of the potential repercussions moving forward? Well, informed is just keep read, just read around, right? It's all stuff's all on the internet and just sort of pay attention. But, but to do something, I think we have to recognize that this is fundamentally a policy issue. This is not a tech issue, it's a policy issue. It's a tech informed policy issue. So, so the listeners who are technologists, I think, need to start learning about policy and, mm. and working to influence policy. You know, I, I put a great stock in what we're calling public interest technologists, technologists who are doing work in public policy in one way or another. And our problem is that if we don't do this, policy is going to happen to us without us in the room. And it's not going to be good policy. If we want real technologically informed policy, we need to in, we need to inform the policymakers ourselves. No one else is going to do it for us. Interesting. Yeah, well, this has been a, a certainly fascinating conversation for at least me to be a part of and, and get your insight on all of this. I want to just go ahead and wrap up with kind of one last question here. Like I mentioned, right, you've been uh, a very prominent figure in the security space for the last 25 plus years at this point. Uh, and it sounds like you're you're clearly very passionate about this topic in particular and the impact in terms of the world being a better place. But what's really next for you as an individual, as a businessman, uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning and, and really excites you about your role in society? You know, I'm, I'm still writing. I'm working on a book, possibly a year and change. I'm, I'm teaching here at Harvard. I'm involved in Tim Berners-Lee's solid project. I do consulting. I write small things. Right? As I said in the beginning, I have a part of kind of a portfolio life. I do a bunch of different things. They're all, they're all exciting. Well, certainly staying busy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Bruce. This has, again, been very fascinating insights. And uh, again, I think the, the ramifications really fall on, on everyone in our society. And so I think there'll be a lot of people excited to kind of learn a, a bit more about this topic that maybe they hadn't fully considered in the past. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty, and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.